Hi everyone, welcome to Pink Shade, the podcast where we talk about all the shows we are addicted to, plus the reality stars we love, even if we're giving them the side eye. I'm here to talk about everything going on, Bravo, TLC, Lifetime E, A&E, Oxygen, Reels, MTV, you name it. We're going to dive into all of it with a special emphasis on housewives each week, of course. My first love, probably my last love, if they last as long as I hope they will. I'm also going to dish on cults, real life cults, and ghost stories. When I say ghost stories, I mean supernatural shows out there, legends, things going around the internet, both local and globally. And I'm also going to talk about a few of my own supernatural experiences. So. Before you press delete on this podcast, just hear me out. It's going to be fun and it's not going to be freaky. Well, maybe a little bit freaky, but I'm glad you're here and we're going to dive right in. Okay, so this week in reality TV, a few things happened. Of course, the Real Housewives of Orange County had the last part of their reunion and we saw something happen that we waited the entire season for. Vicky made up with Tamra and Shannon, or should I say that Shannon and Tamra finally forgave, I'm doing air quotes with that by the way, forgave Vicky for her many transgressions. Now whether the viewers will forgive Vicky for her many transgressions is up for debate. I don't know about you, but I was really, really relieved and happy to see that that moment occurred, even if it was all fake, even if it was made for TV, even if it was, you know, Andy Cohen basically telling them you're not going to get a paycheck or a contract renewal unless you do this shit because I had enough. I mean, this season, I started getting personally upset only two or three episodes in that it was just the worst season ever. And it turned out to be the worst season ever, in my opinion. Uh, I don't think I'm alone in that either. And it doesn't mean that I don't love that city and that franchise anymore. I do. I want to see it be awesome. I want to see them be frenemies. You know, that's what we watch The Housewives for. Well, that and the aspirational viewing that we all do. Speaking of that, I think that's why they brought Peggy on this season, who contributed to the worst season ever by being herself. Peggy, goodbye. Please escort yourself out. We won't be calling you. I could not handle one more moment of Peggy, and her being on that reunion couch for two parts was basically pointless. She continued to be confusing. She continued to not understand basic idioms and turns of phrases. She had a fight with Kelly Dodd over a schoolyard nitpicky argument. My dad will beat up your dad. I mean, who hasn't said that at some point in their lives? I know I have. I'm raising my hand. I think I said that, even though my dad would never beat up anyone. Anyway, Peggy was just such a zero. And I think, you know, producers brought her on because she did provide that aspirational viewing. You know, she and Dika were all about the flash and showing off their weird Oreo cars and their lifestyle and buying each other, you know, huge pieces of jewelry for their 
strangely numbered wedding anniversary. What was that? Their 22nd wedding anniversary, which isn't even a big thing. And, you know, I get it. I get that OC was trying to do that. They were trying to reach for something a little bit more like Beverly Hills because OC can get kind of janky sometimes. Looking at you, New Jersey. But it didn't work. It didn't work out because her personality is so bad. And I doubt she'll ever listen to this podcast. In fact, if you're listening right now, can I just say thank you? Because this is the first one. And I just am sending you virtual kisses and hugs and casseroles for even tuning into this. But Peggy, uh, who I think will never listen to this, if she does, I don't, I would never want her to think I'm being mean about her personally because I don't know her. But when I say I didn't like her, and in fact, I felt hatred toward her at times, I didn't like her as a housewife. I don't know that many people did like her as a housewife. I can't imagine her scores were too high. What is it they call the Q rating or something like that um, for housewives or for celebrities in general? <laughs> I don't know that we're going to call these people celebrities. Let's call them Bravo celebrities, right? I, I, I can't see that, you know, she endeared herself to any segment of the population other than maybe her immediate family circle going outward to maybe some cousins who watched. I don't know. Deco was a better housewife than Peggy, and Deco uh, will not be back on without her, as we know. I predict that she's going to be a one-season wonder. I think that Bravo will probably look for someone with similar money next year because I do understand the point of that, and I think that's why we all probably got into watching The Housewives in the first place. We don't really want to watch people struggling. We want to see them socially struggling with one another, but we want to see the glitz and the glamour. And that's what Beverly Hills brings to us and why it's such a successful franchise. That's what New York brings to us too, which, you know, New York, I got to say is always my fave. Those are my homies. I think they could do no wrong last year, even with the ridiculously long Tom and Lou storyline. I think they bring it and they've just got the right ingredients in their whole cast. And I've heard that everyone's gotten their contract back and everyone's coming back this next season. And they're filming right now, I would assume, because they always film in the fall. In fact, ooh, do you guys think they're going to the Berkshires soon? Dorinda is about to make it nice, I bet. Oh, that gave me a tingly feeling. I bet she's actually making it nice right now. Oh my God, you guys. Okay. I need to just take a moment to take that in. So anyway, New York has it going on. Beverly Hills has it going on. Atlanta, they have a different vibe. They're not as much of the aspirational viewing, but they've got such a dynamic cast that I think that's why it works. And you know what? I know, I know you're going to say I'm a New Jersey apologizer or an apologist, however you want to put that. And I am but I think this season they're bringing it as well. And it's because their cast has the addition of Margaret Josephs. Let's bow our heads for a moment and thank the baby Jesus for casting Margaret Josephs. Not that the baby Jesus did that, but I'm going to give him credit. She is phenomenal. She is the best casting decision that 
they have made since they included Dorinda on the New York cast. I think she has a similar vibe to her. You know, she's different than Dorinda, obviously, in a lot of ways. And those fucking pigtails, people. OMG, those pigtails. I don't know. I, I, I can get over them because I like her so much. And I love that she comes for Siggy. But hold on. I also love Siggy, too. And I don't love how she's acting. It's kind of like a child. You love them even when you don't like their behavior. And that's how I feel about Siggy. I still have much love for the Sigster. I think she's going through something in her personal life that's making her act very strangely this year. That is my spidey sense. And I know some of you have reached out to me on social media and offered up some opinions about her marriage maybe being in trouble. I think you're on to something there. Mm-hmm. I think you're on to something because when housewives' marriages are in trouble, they go a little crazy. See Shannon Bedore as Exhibit A in our courtroom case. Shannon Bedore went crazy this season on OC, and she was also gaslit from every corner of the cast mates. So I, you know... She had good reason to go crazy sometimes. Other times, mm, like, that's not my plate. Not so much. It was all about her being unhappy in her personal life. And thank God she has left David. Ugh. I'm not a David fan. I never was a David fan. After he cheated on her and she claimed to get over it and they did that weird therapy together. And then, oh, the kiss of death, the vow renewal. You guys saw the writing on the wall, didn't you? I did. I mean, I think we all did. Mm, it, it, I, I said it before and I'll say it again. If my husband ever brings up the idea of a vow renewal to me, which P.S. he never would. He barely remembers our original wedding, nor does he care to. But if he ever brought that idea to me, I would immediately call a lawyer and start dividing up assets and work out a custody arrangement with our child because I would know that divorce is on the horizon within a year, maybe two tops, two tops. I mean, who has survived the vow renewal? If you guys have out there, congrats. Maybe I've just watched too much Housewives in my life, which I'll admit I have. It skewed my sense of reality big time. But I see it as like the giant red flag for all of these chicks. It, they they push for it or their husband push for pushes for it. And next thing you know, see you later. We're making our announcement on TMZ. So anyway, but back to OC. It's over. It's done. Put it to bed. Put a fork in it. Whatever you want to say. And I couldn't be happier because I feel like good riddance to bad rubbish. This season was almost unbearably boring at times. Iceland sort of saved it at the end because Vicky going to the hospital is always fun for me. Um, I love her too, by the way, as a housewife, but I like to make fun of her because she is just too much. I never see her getting fired. I don't see Tamara or Shannon going anywhere. I would like to see Lydia gone. I would like to see Peggy gone. I would like to see Megan gone. I feel like she was brought in as a pinch hitter this season when that Brianna Stanko was dropped or quit. I, I don't know what the full story on that was. 
And as evidenced by Megan's scenes at the beginning of the season where she's just sitting in a room with her nanny and she wasn't even with the cast, it was just so disjointed. Lydia's rainbow elf on the shelf deal is over for me. It was over for me before she came back. I'm not a fan of Lydia. I'm not a fan of her piecemeal godly beliefs and her Doug is getting his balls cut off routine. I wanted to stab myself with knives every time she said that and she wouldn't stop saying it. I think she's one of those people who thinks she's funny and thinks she comes off as really lighthearted, but she's actually super, super annoying. And oh my God, if I'm one of those people, I don't know. Somebody tell me. No, don't tell me because that's mean, even though I just said it about someone else. But I'm not on TV, so it doesn't count. Anyway, <laughs> I'm rambling now. But it, it, the, the bottom line is OC's done. I'm glad. I want to see next year. Okay, here's what I want to see. I want to see Tamara, Vicky, and Shannon maybe not be besties, but I want to see them fucking film together for one. I mean, get it together, ladies. Number two, I want to see one or two really hot younger housewives come in and just mix that shit up. And so Tamara and Vicky and maybe Shannon also will band together against them. Kelly Dodd and Shannon can be single gal besties. They can go out on the town and do their Tinder trolling together. I would love to see that. I want to see them hook up. And Kelly can befriend the new hotties and she can kind of be the bridge between the old and the new because she is the newest housewife that I would like to see stay. And I would like to see her get in the middle more because she single-handedly for me saved this season. And I think I'm going to like her single more than ever. The jury was out on her, her first season for me this season. I'm all I'm all in with Kelly Dodd. I want to see her back. I want to see a, see her be a heavy hitter and bring on the hot chicks, man. OC needs it. We need it. We deserve it. We have suffered enough. So as you already know, this podcast is going to be dedicated to a lot of reality TV, a lot of the shows we're obsessed with. But what we're also going to do is some talking about cults. And I'm going to start with a cult that many of you might not be well-versed in, and it's because it's not too big anymore. It's probably got only a few hundred members, but in the 1970s, it was the shit, and you might know of it if you live in the, what we call the tri-state area of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York. I grew up largely in south-central Pennsylvania, the Harrisburg-Hershey area, and um, I'm very aware of this cult for many reasons, and I'll, I'll tell you a lot more about that very soon, and I'll be talking a lot about my personal connections to this cult as we continue in this podcast over the next months. 
but I'm going to just introduce you to what it is, who founded it, and what it was all about in this first episode of Pink Shade. So the first cult we're going to focus on is called the Kobu. The Kobu, C-O-B-U, stands for the Church of Bible Understanding. It was also known as the Forever Family in the 1970s before it was renamed by its leader, Stuart Trail. Stuart Trail is still alive today. And on Listverse, if you look up American cults or U.S. cults or top 10 cults, the Church of Bible Understanding, the Kobu, is number one. It comes as a shock that this is number one on the list, even though the list does say they're in no particular order. I think it's very interesting that this is right at the top, and it it even shocked me when I saw that it was placed there. Above the Manson family, above Scientology, above, you know, all the big ones that that are sort of the buzzword cults we hear about. The Kobu is there, though, and it's firmly placed on this list as a prominent cult because in the 70s, it had uh, over 100,000 members. And I'm going to just read you a little bit about who it was and what they did. And I'm reading from Listverse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a lot more tidbits about the Kobu, like I said, in coming weeks and months. But here's just a small explanation of the nuts and bolts of this, this joint. So the Church of Bible Understanding, formerly known as the Forever Family, is a destructive cult started in 1971 by former atheist and vacuum repairman Stuart Trail in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Remember Allentown? Billy Joel, we're living here in Allentown. That is the only time I'm going to sing on this podcast, I swear to fucking God. So don't worry. That, That hopefully will never happen again. All right, anyway, so Allentown is where this this whole organization was born. The cult targeted teens as young as 13 by drawing on their weaknesses. Throughout the 1970s, the cult expanded to many other parts of the United States. Now, when it says many other parts, I would say, let's just call it what it is. Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, oh, Maryland also, Baltimore mainly. And finally... Florida. Of course, you can't have a cult without including Florida in it somewhere in its trajectory. I just feel like Florida is automatically part of any kind of cult history. Trail, Stuart Trail, the guy who founded this, and again, he's still alive today. He was born in Quebec, or as people in Quebec say, Quebec. I worked there for a little bit, so I got schooled often on how to say Quebec. He was born in Quebec in 1936 He's the son of a Presbyterian minister who teaches that he is the reincarnation of Elijah. Those of you Bible study students out there, oh, and I was one, so I will be talking about the Bible. Don't worry. It's just because I'm talking about cults. This is not a Bible study podcast. But Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and Stuart really said that he was the reincarnation of this prophet and that he knew the date of the return of Jesus. He told his followers he knew exactly when Jesus was going to return. I don't think he ever shared that date with them, though. He wanted to keep that close to the vest. You know, cult leaders like to keep their secrets. Members of the cult lived in communes 
and they donated 90% of their income to the cult. Stuart Trail amassed a fortune by running his group this way, and he today owns four planes and a large estate in Florida, and according to former members, he controls he controlled at the time every aspect of his members' lives through harsh criticism, shame, and public humiliation. Ron Burks, who is a staff member at a residential treatment center for former cult members, because there are actually treatment centers out there specifically designated to helping ex-cult members reintegrate into society. It's kind of like rehab for the brainwashed. This Ron Burks guy who works at one of these places says, quote, Stuart Trail has one of the most effective means of shutting down critical thinking I've ever seen. Of the hundreds of people I've treated, Kobu is definitely in the top five in terms of harm and psychological damage. The Kobu also ran a mission in Haiti with several orphanages where some of the former members claim the Haitian children were indoctrinated in exchange for food and clothing. So think missionary, missionary enterprise where you go down and you maybe um, give shots out or you donate clothing, but you require that the children all become Christians and more specifically adhere to your version of Christianity or whatever religion your missionary is founded in or your mission is founded in. Um, Since these orphanages have been established in the 70s. I'm not sure what the status of them is today. I'm going to be researching that next because I'm really interested in what their hold is in Haiti. I have read some things that allege Stewart used these orphanages as a money laundering scheme because they were tax exempt. They were considered charities and he also, um, They also were poorly rated on, I don't know, Charity Yelp. I don't know how the fuck you rate uh, charities. I'm really ignorant about that. I have to also research that too, apparently. But they were basically squalor conditions, and they might have done some good at some time, and I do have some personal connections to knowing about these orphanages as well. But ultimately, they were shady, you know, and just like everything about Stuart Trail was shady. The Kobu um, received government funds for its Haiti missions as part of President Bush, Bush II, his faith-based initiative. And I think, or I'm sorry, Bush I, excuse me, GW, you've done a lot of things, but you didn't support the Kobu. Bush I, the groper, he his faith-based initiative um, gave funds to, among other things, this cult. Now, the interesting thing about cults, before we get deeper into the Kobu, is that people in them don't call them cults. They call them groups, or they call them families, or they call them their church. You know, Scientologists don't refer, active Scientologists don't refer to Scientology as a cult. They refer to it as their religion or their program. Um... It's only on the outside looking in that something can be designated a cult. And ex-cult members, even when they are on the outside, tend to not refer to their old group as a cult either. 
and I wouldn't say that that's maybe not a gross generalization because, you know, in Leah Remini's groundbreaking series on A&E, which I am totally addicted to, you guys. Are you guys not addicted to Scientology in the aftermath? OMG, I love that fucking show. But in her work with the ex-Scientologists, they do say the C word. They do say cult. Um, but you'll notice they they don't use it a lot. You know, they still say Scientology or the religion. Um, some, some are loud and proud about calling it a cult. But it's very hard to call something a cult that you were once thinking of as an up-and-up way of living, you know, a, a right, a right, noble enterprise that you willingly went into a lot of the time that, that nobody forced you into, you know, the, the myth about cults that they prey on weak people. It's, you know, that is partially true, but people do make up their own minds to join one. And so it's very hard to admit that you were duped and that you, um, we're part of something that wasn't true necessarily. Now, I'll tell you a little bit this week about my personal connection to the Kobu and why I'm starting with this particular cult, even though it's not the most sexy cult out there, I guess. I was born into the Kobu. My parents, Ray and Judy, were Kobu members. They met in the Kobu. They married in the Kobu. They lived communally in the Kobu in Baltimore and Pennsylvania and Manhattan and had me in the Kobu. My first word was Bible. I used to wear buttons, huge buttons pinned to my onesie that said things like get smart, get saved. And we lived in loft spaces with a hundred other families communally while my dad went out and cleaned carpets with the guys, witnessed on the streets to non-believers, and all the women took care of the children and also witnessed to non-believers with us in our strollers. And basically, it's all I knew until we left. My parents would call it leaving. I would call it escaping, looking back on it until we left when I was um, just a little over three. And the interesting part, even though I left this group really early in my life, is that it was very formative of everything that happened afterwards. Number one, when your parents are in a cult and they meet in the cult, that is their origin story for you as a child. And it stays with you forever. Even though we lived, well, we did not live a normal life afterwards, but we, we were like gypsies afterwards moving all over the, all over the country. But we, we were connected to those other ex-Kobu members for life. You know, I'm Facebook friends with the girls and boys who were the kids of the Kobu today, and I hope to get some of them on the show. So if you're listening out there, you know who you are hit me up. I would love to gab about your memories because I have a lot, even though I was so little. And of course, I also have the stories. Um, you're friends with those people for life. You're connected in a way, kind of like a wartime experience. And 
you have a certain worldview after leaving an organization like this that is different from what I would call lay people, people who haven't had this kind of experience. And because in this, at least in this cult, and I'd say this is true for most, you, you enter it somewhat young. You know, my dad, he dropped out of school when he was 16. He had a rough life as a little boy and as a, as a teenager. And, and he, he sort of ran away to this cult looking for a family. My mom came from a very opposite kind of leave it to beaver, mad men type fifties and sixties household. And she was looking to rebel, I think. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to convince her to come on too and tell her story because she just has a fantastic, almost photographic memory of so many of the things in, in our lives, in her life. And I would love for her to share, you know, what it was like just finding this group and why she ultimately stayed in it for, for so long and what she thinks of it today. It's interesting when I talk to her sometimes about it, she still calls it the group or that group, not a cult. And she just kind of looks off in the distance and, and says, yeah, that was so weird. You know, but I, I do pry and I get, I get more out of her. So I'm going to have her on come hell or high water. You know, she's got to support her daughter in this podcast, right, mommy? Yeah. And I want to get some of you friends on too, who know again, who you are, but I'm going to talk about the Kobu. I'm going to find some people out there who are writing about it. I found a lot on the internet from ex-members who have a lot to say about how they were treated. Most interesting part for me is the gender dynamics in that group and the brainwashing that occurred and the guilt and the shame that accompanied your leaving and the means by which people left. I also am going to talk about my memories because I do have them even though I was so small. And ironically, you're not going to believe this, you guys. I remember some fantastic things from this cult. Like, good times, man. I remember good, good, good times. I think, okay, you're, you're going to maybe be shocked hearing this, but it was probably some of the best childhood memories because it was like so much fucking fun being part of a commune. I mean, that's like insanity having just a million kids around all the time. We were always doing like weird activities together. Nothing brutal for the kids. You know, it's probably like what you think is, you know, Surrey Cruz is a little Scientologist or, you know, I, I'm not even going to talk about the fucking Manson family when it comes to that, but you know, the, the kinder, gentler cults that don't kill people or have the mass suicide requests like the Kobu or I would even say Scientology for little kids when you're not in the brainwashing yet. You're just you're just kind of gently being stroked into the lifestyle and there's no there's no crimes being committed against you. It's just like a giant play date and I remember kind of loving it, you guys. It's very strange. However, knowing what I know and growing up with all of the stories of what really happened in there and who Stuart Trail was and how these people were truly preyed upon and the fortune he's amassed on the backs of all of these pretty helpless teenagers, you know, that he recruited. 
I think differently about it now, but if I'm going to be honest, when I share my story and I will, it's going to be pretty upbeat. My parents' story, not so much. Their friends' stories, not so much. Anyway, stay tuned in the coming weeks and months for more about the Kobu. Do some reading on it on your own if you can. If you type it in, if you just type in Kobu, I'll just give you a heads up. You're going to find some Japanese dance come up for about the 21st Google hits. You have to type in Kobu cult or American cults, Kobu or Church of Bible Understanding or even Forever Family or Stuart Trail. T-R-A-I-L. And then you'll hit on the actual cult, the kopu. But unless you want to learn about Japanese dancing, I mean, feel free. That's also, you know, <laughs> apparently called kopu. Sucks for them. Anyway, I can't wait to talk about more of this with you. Well, guys, we've come to the end of the very first podcast of Pink Shade with Aaron Martin. That's me. I'll be back next week with more of everything, more reality TV, more deep dive into the Kobu, our first cult, and maybe if I hear from anyone between now and then, a special guest. I'm always up for that. Until then, find me on realitytea.com, writing recaps and articles about all of your favorite reality TV shows. I'm doing recaps for 90 Day Fiance, woot woot, favorite, and Real Housewives of New Jersey right now, and I write news articles every day. You can also hear me on Jenny McCarthy's Sirius XM Stars show on channel 109 if you have Sirius. I'm on there every week dishing about the housewives and 90 Day Fiance. We're starting soon. Also, hit me up on Twitter. Hit me up on Instagram. I'm mostly on Twitter, but both are the same handle, at Erin Leah Martin. And if you're interested in joining a super secret cult-like group of your own, go to my Facebook page, Pink Shade. It's a closed group where we can dish about everything after the shows. And you just need to send me a request. And as long as you're not Slade Smiley, I will accept you right away. Until then, I will see you out in reality. 